0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I realized that we are standing between you and food and alcohol. So we will make it fun (laughs) and informative and we'll get you out of here. Um, My colleague Gavin and I are here to talk about Orion Health's journey to DevSecOps. Um, Quick question before we get too far into this. Um, How many have you how many of you here have fully embraced DevSecOps and are running with it and, and going at full speed? A few. OK, so uh-huh. you guys get to answer questions later. <laughs> so how many of you have embraced it and are, are getting good progress but not quite where you want to be? A few. OK, how many are just, just getting, getting your feet wet? OK, how many have not started and don't know why you're sitting here? OK, all right, not too many. Good, that's good. Alright, um, so I'm Marnie. <laughs> what- I was Sorry. just
1: gonna ask how many how many people have actually also doing the DevOps practice as well. Just yep. good. Cool. So
0: I'm Marnie Wilking. I'm Chief Information Security Officer for Orion Health. This is
1: Gavin. Yeah. I'm Gavin Madden. I'm the VP of operational engineering at Orion Health.
0: Um so we're going to share our story of our journey to DevSecOps for Orion Health. Um, probably because it's just fun to share war stories, right? We all get to roll our eyes and laugh at the crazy things people do. But also, we've been doing this for a couple years, um, and I, and I will say we're in the we're part way there. We're definitely not where we want to be. We're still doing that journey, but we've had some successes, and I think that the reason that we've been successful on some of the things that we've done are because of the activities and characteristics that will lead you to be successful also, that can help organizations of all shapes and sizes do this the way they need to do. So before we start the, the journey discussion, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Orion Health. So Orion Health is a global software company. We provide health information interoperability software to help hospital networks, providers, insurance companies look at the data and really help enable better health outcomes for patients like you. Um, we have about 50 customers, health network customers, around the world, where we process about 110 million patient records. 20 of those customers are in managed services that we manage for them in five different countries. So Iran Health is a trusted custodian for about 65 million patient records around the world. We are truly a global company. We have over 800 employees in 24 offices in 15 countries around the world. A little over half of our employees are developers. And most of them are in our global headquarters in Auckland, New Zealand. You might have noticed his accent. So um, and by the way, I do get to go to Auckland, New Zealand. It is really beautiful. If you haven't been, I really highly recommend it. It's fantastic. So our primary product is our Amadeus platform. Amadeus, as you can see, is made up of multiple components that enable the integration of multiple types of different records and access to those records for doing that sort of data analytics and and managing those patient outcomes. Orion Health has been selling software for about 25 years to companies to implement in their own data centers and manage. About six or seven years ago, we realized that there was an opportunity to help customers manage that software. They needed somebody to do that for them. I, I, how many of you are in the healthcare industry, by the way? Right. A few, okay. Right. Um, if you're in healthcare IT, you know your budget comes last based on what the doctors want. <laughs> and the security budget comes a little bit after that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so having a managed platform for our customers was a, a Really important goal. We wanted to be the premier health information integration platform for our customers. So, Gavin's going to talk a little bit about where the solution was at that point about six or seven years ago.
1: So, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about kind of our pre cloud journey or where we were at. So, um, like Marnie said, we, we had a number of um, customers that we were providing managed service to, not really SaaS at all, it was very much a managed service. Run in kind of a leased data center. Managing these, Um, we were using AWS in our kind of product development. um, Actually, quite heavily, we're using it uh, for a lot of kind of unit testing, integration testing, and scalability testing. Um, And we actually found that kind of really useful. Um, We weren't really practicing DevOps, so the the idea of you build it, you run it. Um, I don't think we even knew what DevSecOps was at that point. I'm not sure that was even a term back then. Um, but certainly, that combination of multidisciplinary teams that build it and run it and own everything end to end, we weren't we were not doing. We were kind of reading about it and going, uh. Um, and we had this goal, like Money said, to provide um, software as a service out of AWS. Um, and I'll talk a little bit. On the next slide, um, about kind of why why we had that goal. So, although we were, we were kind of running running these solutions for, for our customers, um, cost is always a always a challenge, and we had that challenge as well. Um, and the cost is not just kind of the infrastructure piece of it. So, um, that was kind of a significant piece. Uh, but also just the, the cost of kind of running it is and when, when the cost, you can interpret that to be inefficient. So we weren't getting uh, a good bang for a buck out of the, the people running it in terms of there's, we were having to, if you look at a kind of a, a ratio of customers to, to number of people, um, it was pretty high in terms of the number of FTEs that we need to run a, to, to run a single customer. And it would also scale linearly with kind of growth of customers, and so we could see these models of projecting out to needing armies of people to to be able to just operate the software for our customers. Um, we also it was really hard for us to respond to our customers quickly in terms of making changes for them. Um, we take a bunch of data in um, and our customers are always wanting to, to onboard new data feeds, uh, to change the way the data is processed um, and find new ways to, to use that data. And we weren't able to, to respond to their requests very quickly. We also weren't very very, very able to kind of take all of the hard work our development teams were doing and push new versions of software into those environments as well. So um, we, we kind of felt like we had quite a big ball and chain around our Next literally um, and we also had too many snowflakes so a lot of these customers were had very customized configurations that were specific to them um, and that also helps or kind of contributes to the to the top two particularly the cost and the people cost um, so we made the decision that to move to AWS to kind of help address some of these challenges um, so I'll just talk a little bit about my background um, so um, prior to starting this journey, I'd had a, kind of a number of years experience inside Orion's product development group. Um, so I was pretty familiar with our products and our custom, what our customers were doing them. Um, but I was kind of new to this whole SaaS and operations and DevOps at the start of it. Um, but I had a lot of context out of kind of our Azure journey for product development, which was probably why I was handed well, uh, partly handed this task. Um, so I was tasked with trying to establish a roundhouse AWS environment for our SaaS customers in the US. Um, I was focused on a few things and could see a few challenges. In um, so we're focused on automation. So we'd learnt out of kind of our testing or product testing in AWS that automation was key to get that consistent repeatability. Um, as we went through this journey, we kind of learned that automation is good for a few other things as well, which we'll talk about. Uh, but we knew that, kind of going into this, that automation had to be kind of front and centre. We also don't have a massive team, so we also knew that the way that DevOps and DevSecOps is successful um, without building massive teams is we have to en- enable and empower people um, through things like self-service and other things to be able to to. to control of their own destiny and be accountable for their own pieces. Um, and also we obviously needed to kind of realize some of these potential cost savings and efficiencies out of this. So some of the challenges that we, we faced going into it were um, we had a lot of kind of operational practices and processes and change management processes that weren't really geared up particularly for an automated environment. Um, so we were kind of, found ourselves fighting against some of those as we started out. Um, the organisational uh, behaviour changes that are kind of needed and the, the mindset shifts that are needed to to start DevOps is not to be underestimated, of uh, once you've been or started down that journey, you, you'll kind of realise that the technology is not really the biggest challenge you'll face, it's kind of that organisational change. Um, and we also had some preconceived ideas about security and compliance. And just for the record, this was a pre-money era. <laughs> um, so in those days, kind of our security team were a lot about dictating what the way things had to be done, rather than well, what do, what do we actually need to achieve here? And we'll sure we'll talk a little bit about how we how we changed that model as well.
0: didn't go there we go so then i came along so i spent 20 years in information security and financial services i did lots of things i started out implementing encryption on mainframes which are not dead despite what people might say um implemented encryption on laptops, desktops, um, implemented controls, assessed controls, risk assessments. Last five years at Wells Fargo, I was the information security officer for the mortgage division. So I had a lot of security experience in financial services. Around 2015, the healthcare industry experienced a series of pretty high profile information security breaches. And they realized they needed to get serious about security. And they started recruiting from the mature industries like financial services. So several of my colleagues and I shifted over to the healthcare industry. So I started with Orion Health in April of 2016, and I was told you need to implement a security operations center that will support this new Amadeus solution in AWS, and you need to get high trust compliant. So as it turns out, When I got there, they said, "Okay, so we've already done a POC. We've picked the vendor. The budget is fully funded and approved. You have budget for an extra resource to help run it. You have four months to get the stock up and running. And you have 20-ish months till the end of the following year to get high trust compliant. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. Right? Who gets this? This is going to be so easy. They've already done all the heavy lifting. This is going to be no problem. Right? So obviously, we had some issues, or I wouldn't be standing up here. (laughs) So it turns out that the proof of concept that was done was not actually done in AWS. The vendor's solution at the time that they wanted to do the POC wasn't quite ready yet. So they did it not in AWS. They tested the security functionality, which is great. But they didn't really test the AWS functionality, which includes implementation. Because we didn't test the implementation, we didn't know that it didn't support automation. As Gavin just said, that was one of his top goals. So I want to be really clear, I'm not blaming anyone, I'm not blaming my predecessors, I'm not. You know, this stuff happens, right? And part of the reason it happened is because the teams were siloed. I mean, that happens in all organizations. Lack of communication or just focus on what you think you need to be focused on can happen in any organization of any size, of any geographic region. But siloed teams is the opposite of what DevOps calls for. Right? DevOps really calls for collaboration and communication between teams, not just inter team, in, I'm sorry, not just intra team, inter team. I also realized as we started looking around, not all of the stakeholders had been involved. So not just Gavin's team, but we really hadn't involved the privacy officer. So we didn't know what the privacy requirements were going to be. We Didn't involve the support team. We didn't involve the customer support team. So we didn't really know what all of the requirements were, except that as I went around and started asking questions, I realized we had a lot of requirements. We also didn't have a lot of experience in AWS on my team, and we didn't have a lot of experience in security on Gavin's team. And as we all started talking and realized, no one person really knew how to solve all of these things, and we all had a lot that we needed to learn. So one of the things I found when I came to Orion, came. 2016, like I said, I spent 20 years in financial services where the word cloud was a dirty word. You did not say that out loud in front of anybody in IT, um, especially not the, the business leaders. Putting, putting banking data in cloud was just a big no-no. So we didn't know a lot about cloud. I knew the word cloud. I knew the word puppet. I knew the word Cassandra, Kafka. Um, but I really didn't know a lot. Um, so I assumed I was coming pretty late to the AWS party. And I thought, well, you know, AWS has been around for a long time at this point, so all of the problems that I heard about originally are solved. I wouldn't know more problems in AWS. So again, not not quite true. Um, I found that a lot of the tools that I was used to using in our on-prem data centers didn't port to AWS, or just flat out weren't available in AWS. So I couldn't use the same things. A lot of the tools weren't able to support automation. Again big deal. Um, and a lot of security products are not actually secure, unfortunately. So we had, we had a lot of issues that we needed to overcome and we needed to get pretty creative about it. So we did a reboot. We scrapped the effort with that particular vendor. Um, again, not necessarily because they were doing anything wrong or bad. It did not work for us in that iteration at that point in time and we needed to start over. So we identified all of the stakeholders, went and grabbed everybody, got them all on the phone. So operations, engineering, delivery, um, support, customer success, information security, privacy, quality, compliance. Right? and started so talking about what all of those different requirements actually were. We really looked, took a hard look at what the high trust requirements were And then we looked at our threat model and actually spent some time talking through in a lot of detail. Here's what our solution looks like. What are all the bad things that can happen? And where should we be preventing, correcting, detecting issues and and putting that into our set of requirements? We also talked about what our key success factors are for business partners. The first vendor didn't work out because they didn't have the experience in AWS that we needed. I still recognized that we still had a lack of AWS experience, particularly on my team. And I was going to need to augment that with a good vendor who had a lot of experience. So we came up with a list of requirements and prioritized them. So when we started talking about automation, I'll be honest, I really, really didn't know. Gavin was adamant. Absolutely not. We're not moving forward with this. They can't support automation didn't understand why. So we sat down and talked, and as soon as I understood what automation really does for us, <laughs> sorry, lost my words. Um, consistent, repeatable, reliable delivery, right? I can sell that to an auditor all day long. And I realized that was the thing that was gonna help us get high trust compliant, making sure we had proper automation, making sure we can get that consistent, repeatable, reliable delivery so automation went to the top. We needed faster time to delivery. And one of the complaints from customers was that we weren't getting their product ready for them fast enough. So having consistent, reputable, reliable, automated delivery helps with faster delivery. Having infrastructure that's already there and not having to add your own hardware helps a ton with delivery. I wanted integrated security tooling. And security should not be an add-on. Part of DevSecOps. DevOps, rugged DevOps, whatever you're calling it in your organization, shifting left, right? Far as you can go. I don't want to have a checklist. I don't want gates. I don't have enough people to check gates. So I wanted the tooling integrated into that consistent, reputable, reliable, automated delivery. Event visibility. I got a lot of patient records. I need to be able to see what's going on. So making sure that all of the security events could be captured was a big deal. Gavin mentioned the cost earlier, optimizing for cost and leveraging AWS's resources to do that was also an important objective. And we needed an experienced trusted partner, not just a vendor who I would buy things from and then they'd come back and ask me for money a year later, right? I needed somebody that I could trust and who was as invested in my success as I was. So as part of those discussions, we also took another look at the solution and, and came up with a few changes in tooling as we went through.
1: Um, so this is a kind of a architecture slide of um, our standard Amadeus platform. Um, and you'll notice some of the technology icons on there like Cassandra and Spark and Elasticsearch. Uh, um, they're cloud native, if not certainly very optimized for, for running in the cloud. Um, so this is also part of why we were, we were looking at AWS, the, the, the technology stack that we were using to deliver functionality to our customers um, was cloud-native or certainly cloud-optimized. Um, the, the architecture for um, the Amadeus platform is a fairly standard kind of data lake with a data processing pipeline that feeds um, an analytics engine over on the far right. Um, but we also expose that out to uh, APIs um, at the top there um, and out through a bunch of user interfaces like our clinical portal um, and other things. So essentially, we have a whole raft of um, what we'd typically call a participant or a data source, for want of a better term, that are feeding dat- data in comes through Rhapsody, our integration engine, gets put into the raw data store, um, think data lake there. Um, And then we we run that through our data processing pipeline, and we we process it and aggregate it together and normalize things like terminology um, and other things that are important to be able to make sense out of this data. Um, And then once we've done that, we turn around and serve that data back up to, for the most part, um, the people that provided it but they're getting a much different view of that data. So they will typically be providing a certain type of data for a certain um, cross-section of the the total population that's serving data up to here. But when they get the data back again, or query the data, they can see for, across all of the patients, and then they can see all of the different types of data as well. So um, it's really about kind of aggregating that data together and serving it back up to people, APIs, applications, um, and the analytics engine.
0: So we went back through this process. We literally went all the way back through the RFP process, put all of our requirements into a document, started sending it out. We actually started with about nine vendors, started to narrow it down. We looked at the AWS Partner Network, which is incredibly helpful. And eventually landed on Anitian for Security Operations Center. So, and one of the reasons that we decided to work with Anitian was partly because of their long experience with AWS. Their team has a lot of experience combined. Um, but also, when we started talking to them, I didn't have any preconceived notions of what kind of tooling I actually needed. So they sat down with us, really spent some time digging through the architecture understanding what we were trying to do, understood that we really needed lightweight, flexible. And they came back and said, you need Trend Micro's deep security. And it, it worked. It's been great, fully automated. I get all of my tooling incorporated into the automated deployment. And Trend has been incredibly flexible from a licensing standpoint. Um, I not only have this situation. I'll talk a little bit more about my um, uh, my Nirvana, but (laughs) I get to use the exact same solution for both my customer AWS solutions, my customer non AWS solutions, and my corporate solution.
1: So one of the the other. Kind of early wins that we had on on our journey to both getting a SOC and on the journey to high trust compliance was um, was around um, what we've come to call the joiners, movers, and levers tooling. But essentially, we know we knew to meet high trust, we we're going to have a um, a couple of use cases that we really need to t- needed to take care of, um, being we of we we need we operate. Obviously, a principle of less privileged access, and only the people that need to have access to certain things to perform their job will get that access. Um, and we wanted to make sure that that was pretty tight from also from a time frame point of view. So if somebody left the organization or moved within the organization and didn't need access to uh, certain environments or capabilities, or, um, that, that was removed um, pretty quickly. Um, the other the other thing is obviously to as part of most kind of security and compliance frameworks things like rotating access keys and passwords and password policies becomes uh, fairly standard bread and butter stuff um, so and we also so and we looked at this and we went well why can't we take our principle of automation and apply it to to this use case as well so what we ended up doing after kind of looking around we we couldn't really find a, a product that would, would meet kind of what we wanted to do. Um, so we built um, some fairly simple tooling, um, which we'll get to the architecture of in the next slide, um, that really we have a known state of what the authorization and, and authentication configuration should look like. Um, we store that in version control. And you can see a small snippet of what the YAML the file looks like there on the bottom. Um and you can see in there there's like the start of my public key and some of the roles and those roles when they expire and my username. And then what we do is we take that configuration and every 15 minutes we stamp it out across the environment. And when I say across the environment, we actually target kind of our centralized LDAP repository and all our IAM roles and credentials. And again, we'll get to that in um, and the big green blob up there you can see with the seven minutes in it, um, that's just a quick, I took a quick snapshot of one of our monitoring dashboards. We monitor the the last, the last time since that last ran. Um, and so that we know that that's regularly getting applied to the environment. So if anybody goes into one of those environments and tries to make a manual change in either the LDAP server or our IAM policies um, or on one of the boxes, we know that that configuration change is actually going to get removed um, in about 15 minutes, certainly no longer than 30. Um, we built it on a um, made use of um, a lot of the Amazon technology to build it, um, so we built it on a serverless architecture. Um, and now we get this, this also produces a nice feed for the SOC and other interested parties about um, whether there's any un- unauthorized changes being made to the environment. Um, it actually removes them. Um, and also we get notified of changes that are being made, legitimate changes that are being made to the environment. So that we can see those happening as well. And we have a, because it's all stored in version control, we have a complete version history of that. So uh, when auditors come along, we can produce that for them and say, here's all the changes. Here's who made it. Here's the, all the ticket numbers that were associated with them. Um, we've got a great kind of chain, change log and change management record um, that's all aligned with that technology. The other thing that we wanted to do is we didn't want to have to have an army of people keeping all these YAML files up to, up to date um, or having to reset passwords and other things for, for people. So we wanted to make it um, very self-service so that people could change their own passwords when it suited them and change their own access keys and other things when it suited them um, so that they could do it at a convenient time for them we didn't wait till we got to the end of the period and then had to produce a big spreadsheet and, and run around and make sure that everybody changed their, their passwords. We were able to notify them with plenty of warning um, and they could change it themselves. Um, and the, the screenshot there is one of our, um, one of our developers uh, changing her password or resetting her password, rather. Um, and you can also see um, it's obviously also initiates changes for the MFA as well. Um, So this is uh, the kind of the architecture version of how this tooling works. Um, So basically, it's geared around um, a Git repository um, stash, which was where uh, the actual configuration's stored. Um, That Git repository is obviously locked down. There's only a certain select uh, group of people that can actually make changes to that. Um, The other thing that we've hooked up to is our corporate Active Directory. Now, we wanted to keep our corporate Active Directory very separate from the Active Directory that runs our SAS customers. Um, there's only a small subset of our total staff that needs has any need to have access to, the, to the, these environments. Um, but one of the key things that we wanted to get was when people left the organization, we wanted to remove their access um, quickly. So when I say we hooked it up, we, take, uh, we get notified of any users that get disabled, and we make sure that they're disabled in this environment. Um, a lot of them, obviously, we have no record of, but we get all the ones that we need to. Um, so all of that gets um, uploaded to a secure S3 bucket. Um, and then we have a bunch of Lambda functions that run across that configuration um, to create and update users. So if a new user gets created, we create that in both um, our LDAP and created an IAM. Um, we run a a shared um, identities account and then use that to uh, assume roles into all the other accounts. So we make changes in that one kind of identity account. Um, there's another Lambda function that keeps, takes care of disabling users and removing their access. Um, we use CloudWatch events to trigger um, a lot of the, the periodic um, Things that need to happen, particularly around rotating passwords and access keys so that we can send out notifications to to people well ahead of time. They know they have to change it. They've got time that they can do it at a convenient time. Um, And we also have um, a chat room where people can go and, like we saw in the example before, reset their password. They can initiate password changes um, there. They can request their access keys be rotated through that as well. Um, and then all of those, like all of those changes, um, publish out onto a, an SNS topic. So we get a great feed of all of these these changes that are happening, um, and we can feed that off to a, a bunch of interested parties, particularly our SOC and a whole whole bunch of other people that are generally interested in that. Um, and once we've kind of got through that, we're, we now had a SOC up and running. Uh, but having a SOC doesn't automatically give you high trust compliance. Um, neither is adding JML tooling to that as well. Um, but what it, So we'd started to run, run some of these things. Um, but as we started to run these things and, and getting more visibility into environment, it kind of gave rise to a bunch more opportunities to improve um, the way that we were doing things. Um, we actually ended up changing things like the way our JML tooling self-service worked. To get people, um, to make it easier for people. We wanted to make it really easy for people to do the right thing and rotate their keys but also <coughs> not make that a laborious process. Um, we had additional customer demands, those pesky customers that, that come along and want to, want to use some software and, and do some stuff. Um, so as part of that we obviously were going through this, um, we were kind of running pen tests which were pulling out other, other things that we needed to address um, we also had to deal with um, the fact that the high trust requirements are not really designed for the cloud. Um, it's a it, it's a, a framework that has a lot of great intentions, um, but the requirements were written, I don't know, a few years ago.
0: How how many of you are familiar with high trust? There are only yeah. a few folks in healthcare. Okay. How many of you are familiar with PCI? Okay. Yeah. So high trust is a certification like PCI that takes pieces of PCI, um, NIST, ISO, and HIPAA, rolls them all into one big certification. So it's about 186 controls in the end. So it's, it's similar to if you've been through a PCI audit, you know what a high trust audit's going to feel like.
1: Yeah. So we had to go through all of the, all these controls um, and, and start interpreting them for the cloud. Um, And those of you who have been through anything like an audit, know that auditors always want, uh, when you make a claim, they want you to prove it. Um, And that means they want to see some documentation um, and other things. Um, And we've been obviously kind of on a short time frame and sticking a little bit to, well, we're doing all this with automation so we can run a little bit light on the documentation um, because it's here in in the code and you can go read it. And see what it does, um, so we started off on on round two. Um, we had to spend some time really working through the high trust requirements um, and getting into well what's the intent behind this requirement and we'd go off to Tamani and her team and say well what's what's the real intent behind this because this we can't do that." Um, and, and oftentimes, we'd also go off to the auditor and ask them questions about, well, what's the actual intent behind that? What are you actually looking to, to truly see here? Um, so we'd, we'd, we'd kind of go through that. Um, like everything, when you start doing, you learn all of the things that um, you thought were true and no longer true, um, um, and you learn some stuff. So we had a lot of tuning of processes and tooling, um, like optimizing uh, the self-service, um, and we needed to get some documentation in order for us to be able to kind of prove to the auditor that all these things we would say we were doing, we were actually doing. The good news is as we embarked into round two that the teams had been working together for a while now so everybody knew who to talk to about different things and are working well together and um, that's particularly important when uh, the bulk of my team is based in Auckland um, and the bulk of money's team is based uh, here in the US um, so we had a number of uh, like I said conversations about how how to interpret certain requirements um, and other things uh, and we started to use the autom- because we had all of this um, automation code that was was going through and, and effectively documenting what was, was happening, we started to pull that out and use that as, as the evidence um, and wrap some stuff around it rather than writing screeds and screeds of documentation. Um, so we also got some great experience and feedback from actually trying to figure out what's doing, what's working, and what's not working. Um, one of those examples is the first time we tried to actually rotate all our SSL certificates uh, it didn't quite go so well. Um, it's one of those things that sounds really simple and practice to do, until uh, you try to do it. Um, and then, so we learned a lot of those. Um, so I guess the the real lesson there is um, is actually get in there and do it and monitor what's happening. And um, so I've put a couple of kind of examples of, of things up there. Um, one is a little snippet of um, Puppet code that installs the, the uh, deep security agent onto the machine. So we, inc- we have a standard set of um, Puppet modules that run on all of our instances um, to run what we call a server baseline on it. So that provides things like our monitoring agents, server hardening, installs the, the deep security agent, and a bunch of other things. Um, and that's something that we run on every single machine without fail. Um, and then we monitor the fact that those have been run. We know the last time it was run so that uh, we know things like, well, OK, when money comes along and says, well, what are all these SSL versions on all of these machines? We, we know what's there. Um, the other okay. one is um, the um, is an alert that we run, so as part of part of HiTrust, they want to know about all of your shared user accounts. Um, and we kind of went through that and looked at it and went, our root account probably fits that. And the root account that you use to log into your Amazon accounts kind of fits that bill, even though that we have a very sh- small number of people that actually have access to those credentials, and it's still protected by MFA and all the rest of it. We kind of want to know when people are logging in to that account. Um, so we set up some, uh, a, it's a little snippet of formation that we set up to basically send a notification to everybody anytime somebody attempts to log in with the root credentials. Um, we do that on both successful and failed um, login attempts for obvious reasons. Um, and that goes off to our security team and also to our core infrastructure services team. Um, and I get quite asked quite regularly, quite quickly, when I forget to, to tell them I'm about to do it ahead of time, um, by both the security team and our core infrastructure services team. So um, that's it's always w- him. <laughs> um, in terms of automation, um, we obviously kind of built the, the, the JML tooling there. Um, we have a lot of AWS configurations that that we, we monitor for conformance. Um, we do a lot of that um, through both Cloud formation um, through understanding um, all of our other uh, puppet runs and Ansible runs on the environment. Um, we also monitor in so we also have a separate development environment where um, we run, we basically grant a lot freer access to a lot of the development teams, but one of the things we don't want them to do um, is start punching holes out into, out into the internet with open-to-the-world things like security groups. So we actually have some monitoring that runs around and checks all of the security groups. And if it finds one that is open to the world, it shuts it down um, and then sends a notification off to um, the security group and also off to the um, owner of that that resource. Um, and the bit of code on the, the left-hand side there is just um, is the bit of Python code that runs as a Lambda function that goes around and and finds all of those and then sends a notification off. Um, The other thing that we validate, obviously, is things like the Trend Microagents are all installed on the machines. And we do that through, we actually do that a couple of different ways. Um, we can do that through the product, but we also do that by knowing that, monitoring the fact that our server baseline has been run across all of the, the machines. Um, and one of the things that we want to do more and more of is we want to move to a very much a notify and then react to that notification rather than having to pe- people to go in and look at dashboards and figure out what's going on. We want to move much more to kind of an alert driven response and have an automated response. Because um, like we've said, um, neither of us have massive teams um, and they're all busy d- doing stuff and we want people to react to the right kinds of things, not necessarily spend their time wading through dashboards trying to figure out if anything is actually going wrong or not. So as we started to, to do this, we'd been largely focused on, on doing this in, in the US for our Amadeus platform. Um, we have a few other products, and we operate in uh, a few other other countries as well. So. Um, we had to embark on both the kind of an AWS internal training exercise, but also, more importantly, kind of on actually what it means to deploy and operate and run your stuff in, in AWS. Um, so we spent time with um, a lot of our other development teams and our, our people out in our regions to explain what it actually means to, to operate and run, run this stuff. Um, this also laid a bunch of groundwork for deployments outside of AWS. Um, so it gave us a really good example, a, good re- a, good, um, a really good feel for when we were deploying this on-prem, kind of the expectations that we had of our customers, what they, they needed to provide. And simple things like, well, we had a, ver- a very good benchmark of, well, what is it actually going to take to run this stuff? What are the things that they should look out for? Um, and those sort of things. And we're also able to use a lot of a lot of the automation in that environment as well, not at the infrastructure of kind of AWS level, but certainly a lot of our Puppet Code and Ansible Code can be used in those environments as well.
0: So once we had the groundwork and had done the deployments in a few other places, we realized that was really the framework. We, ha- we had a framework for what we needed to do, both AWS, non-AWS wherever we needed to. So we codified that in a set of standards that essentially says if you're going to be deploying a customer environment, these are the things that you need to do. So putting the guardrails in, again, I don't I don't want check boxes. That's I don't want the, the developers and the deployment team to have to go through the process and then wait for my team to approve something at the end. If they know what they what's required and they know what they need to do and we've educated them on that. They can put that in themselves. So we've done a lot of work trying to make sure we're giving them those, uh, that education and putting those guardrails in place so that they can move as fast as they need to. Um, we've been looking at other ways to do frictionless security. Um, one of the things that auditors always ask for is when did you do your last access review? Okay. So a one of my high school interns, by the way, wrote the code. Grab some high school interns. They're awesome and they're very excited. Um, Wrote the automation to grab all of the information out of our AWS IAM, put it all into one place, identify who the managers were for each of those folks, and automatically create the JIRA tickets that get sent to the managers with every single person who reports to them, what they have access to and requesting the manager to verify or request changes. So that's made our lives a lot simpler and, again, super easy to give to an auditor and say, here's what we do. It's all automated. Unfortunately, we we can't automate the harassment that has to follow to get the managers to do it, but we can at least get the tickets out there quickly. And my favorite part is I have a global SOC. I don't have multiple SOCs. I don't have one per region. I don't have one for customer and one for corporate. I have one sock and I get to see everything. So I get to see all of our customer security events in the UK, in the US, corporate security events, thing proofs of concept that they pop up in Australia. Um, I get to see it all. Well, my sock gets to see it all. They give me read access. So I do get to see it. So we've come a long way in the last couple of years. Um, and we've done a lot of work to make sure that the teams are really working together and that we can put those guardrails in place for them so that they can move fast and we can continue to get that consistent repeatable reliable automated delivery Um, we did get high trust certified five months early i was very excited Um, we do continue to collaborate Um, the teams have a running list of some automated automation that they would like to do and they both the security team and the delivery team start to pick those things off Um, Strategies are aligned. So I can't emphasize this enough. If you, I, I didn't ask this earlier. How many of you are primarily security? Just a few. How many of you are developers? Developers, delivery, operations? Some, okay. Um, if your team isn't already doing it and you're the security team, I highly recommend go talk to your peers. Go talk to, regardless of what level you're at, Go talk to your peers in the other groups. Understand what they're trying to do and what their pain points are and what their strategy is. Um, it makes my job easier because if I know what Gavin's strategy is and somebody else comes to me and says, hey, I found this new tool. I want to run it in the customer environment. Just, just take a look at it and approve it for me. I can go to Gavin and say, hey, is this part of your strategy? And then he gets to say no, and I don't have to say no. <laughs> so It works really well for me. But it is really, really important. And again, that's part of DevOps is making sure that all of those objectives are aligned and everyone is working together. I've got global visibility to multiple solutions, which makes me incredibly giddy every time I talk about it. We're actually starting to lift and shift some of our legacy environments, our legacy customers. So we do still have the Colo Data Center, and some of our customers are there. It's six-year-old infrastructure it's starting to fail. So they're not happy because they have failures and we're not happy because it costs us a lot of money to continue running it. So rather than migrating them to the full solution, which does take a lot of work and and can be complex, we're actually doing a lift and shift so that we can get the benefit of that consistent, repeatable, reliable infrastructure and put their applications on top of that. That makes them happy and it costs us a lot less money.
1: And just to be clear, when money says we're doing a lift and shift, we're doing a lift and shift of the Orion Health application stack. So, Thank you. what we're actually using all of the same kind of deployment automation for the infrastructure and all the good security monitoring that we come up that we that we get. So, um, we're essentially lifting and shifting the from our customers' point of view what they have and what they get over here is kind of the same functionality operates the same way, but we've essentially put all of the at least infrastructure level. Um, security and network monitoring we 've got all the, all of the and all of the infrastructure being deployed with automation as well, which is is a huge step forward um, and some of our customers kind of recognize that from the reliability of that thing or the improved reliability of that thing I should say um, hopefully you can see that it 's a little bit washed out, but um, I thought i 'd just quickly run through kind of what our BPC architecture looks like. Um, and some of the things just to kind of give you guys the benefit of some of the I guess the, the things that we've learnt as we've been, been going along. So um, what, we've, what we've done is we've certainly separated all of, um, we deal with PHI or protected health information um, in most of our environments but not all places. So we different we, we wanted to separate that out, so we we're clear about where that is, and is not. Um, the other thing that we wanted to do is make sure that we had a, a really good central ingress and egress point, particularly for administrative access. Um, we wanted to make sure that also we could control all of that. Um, so we cr- we started off kind of just creating a. We created a management VPC that runs all of our kind of core services. So that's where our Active Directory instances run. It's um, where all of our automation tooling runs. So where our, our puppet masters live, where our Ansible Towers live, um, it's also where we have all of our jump posts for remote access in. Um, we don't grant any direct access to all of the ones at the bottom, which we'll get to. Uh, We've carved all of the security services off into a separate VPC again so that we can we can very well we can control access to a lot of things inside a VPC with pretty fine-grained controls. Um, We like to make sure that we've got kind of certainly a very ring-fenced thing that we can control access to and then do other access controls on top of that so we've, we don't find ourselves with only one layer of, of protection in there. Um, then one of the, the that shared services VPC up there one of the one of the application level things that we run probably the only thing that we run that doesn't come into contact with any PHI um, is our clinical terminology service um, so again we've carved that off um, and that allows us to be able to do different things and operate that in a slightly different way because we know that there's no PHI in there or ever any PHI getting passed in, or, or, and then obviously no PHI coming out. Um, we also separate all of our clients out so we don't have any commingling of PHI between clients because that would be a very bad thing if that was to happen. Um, we also, for the same reason, separate our, off their production instances into its own VPC. Um, from all of the non-production instances so that we again don't get crosstalk between uh, a live PHI environment and one of our testing or staging environments. Um, one of the things that's not reflected here very well is um, all, all of these run, all of the clients run in their own individual managed AWS accounts. So again, we can separate things out, and minimize that blast radius, um, we carve the Management off, we have a separate identities account that has no actual infrastructure in it but a whole bunch of users and roles um, and roles in all the other accounts and we do um, if you're not doing it already, I strongly recommend um, looking at that model where you start assuming roles into other accounts. Um, it's very powerful and gives you a lot of, a lot of control. it makes it very easy for, um, very easy for people to use and, and assume what they need in certain environments.
0: So we don't have, we've only got about a minute left. Um, so there's still several things we wanna do. Um, I tell people we've done a pretty good job of the SecOps part. We still need to work on the DevSec piece. So part of my team is working with the development teams, but we're trying to take the practices and the, the culture and the collaboration that we've created between security and the delivery and the support teams and pull the, the de- the development teams into that culture as well. Um, They want to. It's finding the the time and the resources to to make it happen. Um, I have um, privacy, security, compliance, um, quality, and patient safety all under me as well. So when we started looking at GDPR, the EU Data Privacy Regulations, um, we Which requires security and privacy by design we realized that really those guardrails can apply to pretty much anything And that's really what by design is it's providing all of that information education up front so we're working on putting some Assessments and tools together to allow for information assurance as a whole by design so that we can get that collaboration and that shifting left for all of those components Um, We're still working on the real time configuration monitoring. So right now it's it's periodically we'd like to get to the point where it's instantaneous and we can wipe it out and replace as soon as possible. Um, Hands off, complete hands off operations is still a strong goal, Um, primarily because when we deal with PHI. We like to make sure that that stays where it needs to stay and nobody needs to go in and touch it. So the more automation we can get directly into production, the more hands-off we can get in production, the less I have to worry about data going someplace it shouldn't go.
1: Yes. So our goal is to be able to get all of those accounts on the bottom of the previous slide so that nobody actually has to to log into those. Or if, if they do, it's a kind of a break the glass scenario of debugging something.
0: So that's it. Thank you all very much. If you have questions, we'll stay here and feel free to to come up. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of the conference.